Hi, everyone. This is Adam Brown. I'm looking forward to seeing all of you guys at our 40th reunion in July. Welcome to the Big Blue Podcast for Farragut High School, all graduating classes. Let's get into today's interview. Welcome, everyone, back to the Big Blue Podcast here. We have a special guest for you, Cynthia Kerr from back in the day. Cynthia, say hello. Woohoo! Hello, everybody. Hey. Hope to see y'all soon. Yeah, yeah. We were just talking off uh, mic here about the reunion coming up real soon, guys. Uh, get your tickets in. So, Cynthia, t- speaking of planning events, I want to know, um, I heard that this was your bailiwick for years, professional planning <laughs> of faith. Tell me about that. What, and that is, is that still a recent thing you do? Okay. And I have been doing this for, golly, 25 years, maybe. Cool. 28 years, something like that. Wow. It's putting a big puzzle together, and the trips that we plan aren't just like a trip to the beach or down to the Caribbean, although we do plan those trips, but we our specialty is planning more of the high-end luxury vacations, say, in Europe or at Patagonia, African safaris, India, Bhutan, places like that. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a bit more complicated than just buying a plane ticket and booking a hotel room. Well, so yeah. you do have to <laughs> it a lot like, of factors. Yeah, it sounds like that's these are places you have to get like inoculations ahead of time for, right? <laughs> uh, yes, you do. <laughs> I have my vaccine card, my long, big yellow book of yeah. vaccine card. So, and then, so like yellow fever or cara uh, or these weird diseases that we don't have to deal with in the West could probably uh, right. level, level a vacation pretty quickly, right? Yes. Uh, when I went to Africa, I had to have a yellow fever shot. Mm-hmm. And then I did take a polio booster and a couple of hepatitis boosters mm-hmm. and meningitis vaccine. That's a I needed to one. take typhoid, but I didn't take it. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't drink the water? <laughs> uh, no, bottled water only in Africa. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, you need typhoid, I'm sure, really, truthfully, to go into Mexico, to South America, Southeast Asia, just to be on the safe side. But I, I still never got one, and I've been to all those places a few times, so. Right, and it's. I never got that one. That's predominantly a waterborne illness, anyway, isn't it? Yeah, but I mean, you're in the water, uh, and then when you're on boats, and the water sprays on you. I'm living on the edge. (laughs) So let me ask you something. You're planning these for other people to go on, but it sounds like you've been out there yourself. Now, is that because you get a big discount or maybe you have to escort some people and show them around the the safari? It's a little bit of both. When I was in high school, I went to Europe between my junior and senior year for about four weeks, and we hit four countries, and I didn't want to go, but my mom made me go. Mm-hmm. with one of my cousins so i went and i loved it i oh, loved it so primarily the, when you say four countries european like germany italy type close by each other y- yes we went to england france switzerland and italy cool so it was i loved every second of it 
and what then was, what in was college, the, what was the year of that? Was that high school? You said. Yeah, that was 1981. Oh, wow. That's before graduation. So we're going to get to that in a minute. Yeah. We might revisit that discussion. Okay. <laughs> so. And then I went again after college and mm. hit like 16 countries. So we did Whoa. Budapest. We went to the communist countries wow. like Budapest, East Germany, uh, Lithuania. Um, and so that was that was fun and interesting and different and. So going? that was all on my own. And then when I became a travel agent, I won two free airline tickets and I went back to Europe to go to the Scandinavian countries and St. Petersburg, Russia. Oh, cool. So, so there's some things that I've escorted. I've escorted a couple trips. Some I've gotten discounts on. Some I have just taken as a vacation. So I've gotten decent rates. What, what year were you over there in Russia? What year was that? Oh, uh, maybe around 1997. Okay. So possibly that was during the Cold War era, right? The Cold War going on? Yes. Mm -hmm. so, I think it was. Did, uh, I, did they go? Well, to when did that? No, maybe not. Maybe not. Um, now, I was in East. Germany during all that. So, I mean, it was East and West Germany and I was in East Germany. Right. Cause they, they took the, the wall down, you know, Ronald Reagan, Mr. Gorbachev, Mr. Gorbachev teared down this wall. I think so, but I was there in 1988. Before. Oh wow. Just before it happened. Wow. Yes. And so we had to go through checkpoint Charlie and <laughs> what was that like? What did they do all your stuff? I don't, you know, I really don't even remember. It was just, you had to show your passport and we had to have their, their currency and we had to spend it all and we couldn't bring it back into West Germany for some reason. And I just remember, I think we got too much money and couldn't spend it. Didn't know what, I mean, we had lunch and there was still money left and we just left it on people's cars on their windshield wipers. <laughs> And, and I'm not, when I say too much money, I'm not talking about hundreds of dollars. I'm right. talking about like ten, twenty dollars. Yes, nice surprise. Still, you know. I guess I don't know. And then we, because we didn't want to get thrown in jail, so we came back with no money. I don't know that they really checked us, but now you came back with the, none of their money. But did you get none of their uh, East German money right. back into East Germany? We were only over there for just. A few minutes to walk around. I shouldn't say a few minutes, but a few hours to walk around, eat, just kind of had that experience, and mm -hmm. and then came back because we stayed. We stayed in Berlin. It was Berlin, so it was East Berlin and West Berlin. Now, is it true in Berlin the stop lights, stop and go traffic lights, have little people that are green rather than round dots like we have? They have like an icon. You know, I do not remember. I was with a group, and I just was led around and was just with some college friends, and I didn't pay one bit of attention to that. I do not recall at all. I, I watch weird documentaries. Terrible of me. I watch weird documentaries, and that was the focus of something that someone was in Germany. And, you know, to them, they, it, there was a reason for it. It showed an actual person walking rather than, you know, whatever. Anyway, so yeah, that's fascinating. Did you get this feeling that there's people behind you the whole time just breathing down your neck, watching every Western thing you do? Oh. These papers expired three weeks ago. You have to come along. Halt! Halt! Der Angriff Steiners war ein Befehl! 
I did in Budapest because see Budapest was communist at the time too, and yes, I did in Budapest. It was creepy. Well, it's kind of hard to enjoy yourself when you know you think you're going to get shot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was only there for a night, and I didn't stay out too long. We just went back to our rooms, and then we got ready for dinner. And so were you also were you also one night in Bangkok? I got. <laughs> um, I've been to Bangkok twice, and I've stayed three nights. Get tired. You're talking to a tourist whose every move's among the purest. I get my kids above the waistline, sunshine. Yeah, you've been a world traveler, and you did it so early on. So let me ask, was this something that gave you the idea to get into this industry? It did. I remember in eighth grade, we had to do some speech. If you were at Cedar Bluff, I had Miss Gettys for eighth grade English, and I had to do some speech, and I did it on being a stewardess. And... Then in high school, we had our research paper, and I think I did that on being a stewardess. I wanted to be a stewardess, and then in college, I got my degree in fashion merchandising because I thought, I want to be a buyer at Saks or Bloomingdale's, and when I graduated three months in retail at the Limited, I said, no way, Jose, I do not like retail. And then I went to try to be a um, flight attendant for American Airlines, and I didn't get it. I was devastated. I'm like, how do I not get this job? I mean, come on. But at the time, they had a big weight weight issue, and I think I weighed, I needed to weigh 120 pounds, and I weighed like 122 pounds or something like that. So they cut was, you off. It was my bagel I had for breakfast. Come on. I know, Exactly. <laughs> So I didn't get the job, which that was fun. I got a totally different career. I worked for waste management and sales, garbage sales. Oh, wow. So I was there for a few years, and then that ended, and I went to travel school and became a travel agent, and it was a four-month class post-college. Let, um, let me back up for just a second. When you were back in Cedar Bluff, <laughs> and you had dreams of being high in the sky and serving people coffee, tea, and drinks. Did you happen to run into a character named Troy Goodell, who he told me in his interview he was the prime minister, voted prime minister in something, American history class or something. Do you remember Troy at Cedar Bluff? I do remember Troy, but I don't remember that. And I don't know if we were in the same class with Mr. Simpson or not in yeah. eighth grade. Well, it's not that I I'm, I'm not trying to vet his story true or not. I'm just wondering, yeah. <laughs> did you happen to see your I prime minister? <laughs> uh, no, I did not recall the prime minister quizzing me on coffee, tea, or me. <laughs> That's funny. I'll, I hope Troy listens yeah. to this because, you know, he, he's a wealth <laughs> of experience. So he's got a myriad of jobs that he's done. and He's got a great memory. Too. Oh, right, he used so, to have a great memory, not as much anymore. Well, tell me about that. What uh, Health-wise, I had heard through the grapevine, through one of your close friends, that you had had some health issues. Would you like to talk about those? Well, I can. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I had a double lung transplant wow. 18 months ago, almost to the day. Oh, my goodness. How in the world does that happen? Is that rare? And it's crazy because I've been a – it's pretty rare. I've been a very healthy person my entire life. And it's just something that ha happens randomly. Wow. They said it could have been a genetic issue. So wow. I had a cold, and it just didn't heal right, apparently. Okay. And then it settled in the wrong spot and caused this big issue. 
and may have brought out this underlying whatever may you know whatever some underlying issue i had may have never come out ever but this one instance with this cold i guess brought it out we don't know 100 percent for sure but that's kind of their assumption so and that I'm was just going one, with that, it. Was, that was one lung that was affected by this this viral whatever it was but how did the other one get affected well, it's the whole thing. It's called interstitial lung disease. So it was inflammation in the lining of the lungs, which okay. damages both of them. Okay. So my right lung was worse than my left lung. So after three years of this and being treated, the first year I was not treated because I didn't really know what it was. And I was going to all these different doctors. And my big lesson on all that is if you have a problem, you only go to your doctor twice and within a month. And then you go somewhere else. You demand. You go somewhere else. You go to an expert. Expert. You don't just lollygag around. You say you, you need. You know, if there's if you've got a cough or a hack or whatever, you say no. I need to go to the pulmonologist, not to an internist. I need a pulmonologist and and work your way into one, which you know, is what I should have done. I should have been more proactive, but I. I hear a lot of people can complain about too many specialists. Why can't I just have an old country doctor like back in the day that knows everything? But this is an instance where you want a specialist, right? You need a specialist. And I went to my internist, my allergist, and then he referred me to a pulmonologist. And I mean, I was with this guy for like four months. And one of my coworkers says, okay, you you got to go see my mom's doctor at Vanderbilt. So I got all nervous breaking up with this one doctor. I'm like, Oh my gosh, you know, and I'm you know, stupid. And I just wrote him a letter. I'm sorry. I'm transferring. So I did. And probably a year and a half into it all. He said, I think you need to be prepared for a, a double lung transplant. And I was like, what? And I mean, I just, I was shocked and I go, they don't work. He said, yes, they do. Let's settle down. Let's talk about this. I said, no, I don't want to. I, I just, just surely not. It may not happen. I don't know, but we need to kind of think about it and kind of get prepared for it a little bit. And, and I'm going to give them your name and they'll reach out to you when they think you're ready. Well, I never heard from them for a year. And then when the pandemic hit last year, two years ago, uh, that June, I went to the doctor and I knew, I'm like, okay, I know it's coming. It's coming. And when I went into the, do my test in that June, he said, it's time. I said, I figured. And it was, and the transplant team called me in July. We went through all the evaluations in August and they put me on the list. And 20 minutes later, they called me and said they had lungs. And for me to get to Vanderbilt by four o'clock PM. That is fast. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> is it because it's such a rare operation? There's plenty of lungs to go around that match. No, no. Uh-uh. Um, it, I mean, literally this 20 minute wait was, I mean, that was Jesus, yeah, honestly, that's a it just really matched up. Well, um, it's all about your size, the length of the lungs, the desperation for the lungs, which I was not desperate. In fact, I barely qualified to even have the transplant because I wasn't that bad yet, but I was bad, just bad enough. Mm -hmm. And, and I matched happened to match somebody that didn't have any antibodies and I didn't have any antibodies, which was great. And so it worked in their system. It's kind of like a match game system that 
they don't know names or anything. It's just all based on numbers and it matched and clicked and, and I got the phone call. That is Voila. so awesome. Cause I know yes. it's rare, you know, Doug Floyd, yes. he had to have a kidney transplant. He looked up and that the match was almost identical. They said they could have been twins. Um, wow. But then when the COVID thing hit him, it kind of undid all that wonderful work to that good kidney. And now he's doing the dialysis and trying to bounce back. But yeah, I know, you know, matching the transplants, several factors. And it looks like everything lined up for you perfectly, just exactly it as you needed. It did. And I went through the surgery with flying colors. And when I came out, though, because I had not been on medicine at all for my entire life, other than Claritin or Advil, cold and sinus, or a Z pack from time to time, my kidneys shut down. Oh. And I was on dialysis mm. for a month. And that was not fun. So I feel bad for Doug. And it's a little bit different with me because I was so weak from the operation. I mean, it, they really just zap you with massive doses of medication. And then to do the dialysis at the same time, it was, I mean, I couldn't even walk. They would make me walk, but it was it was touch and go. People had to be all around me in a chair, follow behind me to make sure I wouldn't fall down. And so that was a little humbling, but it all worked out. I mean, it's all come out in the wash, and I'm not on dialysis anymore, so I was excited about that. And I hope Doug gets off of that fast because that is not fun. It's time-consuming and right, yeah. inconvenient and just not fun. Well, how long were you on it before your kidneys bounced back? I had nine treatments, and I think those treatments were over like a three-and-a-half-week period. So not very long. And not very long at all. Not very long at all, but I did tell them – Cause I was, I was pretty jovial in the hospital the whole time, whatever they said I needed. I was like, okay, whatever. But then they would also come in and say, okay, we're going to do this today. And I would say, okay, what time? And they finally started saying, we know you're a planner. We know you're a planner. Don't get used. If I say it's four o'clock PM today, it could be moved to 11 AM or it could be 8 PM. Okay. So that was always kind of funny, but I did tell them in the hospital, I said, look, I survived this lung transplant. I'm in transplant mode and I don't want to do much more of this dialysis. And if I need a kidney transplant, let's just do it right now. Let's get it over with and get on with it. So the show can go on. I'm, I'm done with this dialysis. And they're like, Oh no, 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 no. Let's just calm down for a second. You're not going to need it. It's going to come back. We're looking at your numbers. It's coming back. They're doing better. They're doing better. Just hang in there. We promise. I said, okay, okay. you just have to give me the light at the end of the tunnel and I'm fine. <laughs> and they did that's always good to know you know when when they're honest with you and tell you the truth up front it, it lessens the anxiety too oh brutally truthful which is a good thing i need that so you said you were barely the list of having the operation done does that mean that like you, you could still breathe okay you just saw something coming down the pike that's going to affect these really bad it was getting more and more difficult to breathe so i could not have a conversation with you like I'm having at this uh, moment. Okay. It would be about every second or third word. I would be like, you know, I'd try to take a deep breath. I mean, it was noticeable. I was struggling breathing, but I wasn't at the critical level where I needed masses amount of oxygen. Um, it was strange. Like I could sit down and my oxygen levels would be fine. And even if I spoke, my oxygen levels would be fine for a little bit, and then they would go down, down, down. 
and then I would have a harder time breathing. And then I would have to put the oxygen on. And then I had to sleep with it. But I was only up to five um, milliliters of oxygen. And some people, I talked to a girl yesterday that's going to have a surgery in Boston. And through a friend of a friend that found out about me. And so she wanted me to talk to her friend. And I did. And she's on 15 um, liters of oxygen. Whoa. And she's she's been waiting now for two weeks, I think, or a month. And some people have waited like four months, even at Vanderbilt, because they've had other issues. Say they've had hepatitis or, I don't know, some crazy something. And so it makes the match a lot harder. So they want you to be pretty much a picture of health before they improve your health. I was pretty much a picture of health. You have to see so many doctors and be evaluated. And I had to have a heart cath. I mean, all this crazy stuff before I was going to be accepted. And every doctor that I met with you know, like infectious disease and cardiology and end of um, all the the GI doctors, upper and lower, and they're all like, we've seen no reason for you to not be a perfect transplant candidate. Mm-hmm. You're very healthy. My lab numbers were really good, and did they give you? It was any, weird. Did they give you any statistics on the procedure? Like, for example, every year in America, there's X amount of lung transplants done. No, I know at Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt was, had like 30. So when I was qualifying, my insurance company called me and said, look, Vanderbilt is not the top category for lung transplants. They are for all other transplants, but not lung. University of Kentucky is. Hmm. And I said, well, I'm from Knoxville. So my family lives in Knoxville, but I've lived in Nashville for 35 years and all of my support is in Nashville Mm -hmm. and I don't want to go to Kentucky. And if the split is 60, 40 versus 80, 20 and my max out of pocket expense is this, and I've already met it so far for the year, what difference does it make? Mm -hmm. And then they said, well, it doesn't make a difference because you've already hit your max out of pocket. I said, well, then that's the end of the story. (laughs) I'm getting it done at Vanderbilt. Right. Right. Well, that's good. Yeah. And I did. So your support, and it worked out perfectly. Mm-hmm. Your, your support system for that long period of time. So now, speaking of time, we're going to crank up the time machine, go back a little bit. <laughs> where are we going today, Mr. Peabody? Not where, Sherman. When? <laughs> <laughs> Find out exactly, Cynthia, what were you doing after graduation? After you threw your cap and gown up and what was your day one experience? You already in your head you've got it all planned out. What are you gonna do other than be a world traveler to start things off? <laughs> oh, golly, I don't even know what I did. I probably just hung out at my mom and dad's pool, wouldn't had friends over. Okay, but then, I would say, I mean, nothing just too great of right. any but you know, did, any big deal. But did you have any, like, uh, medium to long-range plans? Like, for example, a lot of people already have a college picked out or a business to start or join. Or do we uh, just basically I undecided? mean, I knew I had college. I was, went to college, but 
I mean, I had no big anything because mm-hmm. I don't know. It just seems like that time that was just not a big deal. I just knew I would graduate from high school and go to college and try to figure out what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. What, I did what, have a summer job working at the water fun park there by the court South and the, the water fun <sighs> park. Which one was that? Mm-hmm. It was by court South. It's where the pilot gas station is now at Walker Springs. Okay. Oh yeah. Yeah. That place. So I worked there and that was fun. And I mean, really, that's all I did. It was just sit up at my mom and dad's pool and hang out with friends and work at the water park. And that was about it. But you're saving money for tuition at the water park? No, I I don't think I even barely got paid. Mm -hmm. So when you decided to go to college, what was your major? What what did you want to major in? It was my major at first was... um, business and marketing and then the math got to be too hard so i switched it to marketing and fashion merchandising i wanted to be a buyer yeah and you mentioned that earlier you want a buyer for like a corporate a retail store what tell us for those yes. of us who don't understand what does a buyer do besides i guess to buy stuff well yeah you just you go to market and you get to look at all the stuff and you that's what you pick out for the store and you get to meet all the reps from all the clothing lines to buy for the store. Like and to e- me, e- that would be fun. Like um, uh, Ralph Lauren and Yves Saint Laurent yes. and all those yes. hoity-toities. All that. So you're, you get to yes. go to the store before it goes to the store. Exactly. Okay. And that's what I wanted to do, but I never did it. You have to work your way up to that, and I wasn't willing to do that after my few months stint at the limited retail Was, store. Wasn't there a major motion picture that really covered this well about a, a, a girl that was going to be a buyer? Um, something about stiletto, red stiletto, red heel, the devil in high Pravda or something. The devil wears oh, Pravda. Yeah. That's the, what it was. The Devil Wears Prada. <laughs> Prada, yeah. That was a great movie. That <laughs> does, was a great, is that pretty much, movie. Does that sum up what the buying life might be like, I guess? <laughs> it probably is. I'm sure it's dog-eat-dog, catty, real catty. And... I don't understand why it's so difficult to confirm an appointment. No, I'm so sorry, Miranda. I actually did confirm last night. Your incompetence do not interest me. Tell Simone I'm not going to prove that girl that she sent me for the Brazilian layout. I asked for clean, athletic, smiling. She sent me dirty, tired, and Paunchy. And RSVP, yes, the Michael Kors party. I want the driver to drop me off at 9.30 and pick me up at 9.45 sharp. Um, just temperamental and I don't need that in my life. What I do now is absolutely perfect. I love it. It's so much fun to talk to people about things. And it's fun to talk about the, you know, some people... When you plan big trips, and we plan big trips, you know, $20,000 up to $200,000. But every now and then you get one that's 5000 and somebody, it's their first trip, and they want to take their daughter. And and it's some mom that's had cancer, and she doesn't know how much longer she's going to have left to live. And, and she wonders if I would work with somebody like her. And I'm like, are you kidding? Yes, I don't care if your budget's two thousand. We'll figure something out. I want to make this, I want to make this trip great for you. Right. And we'll do everything we can. And those things are very fulfilling. But then when you have also the big trips too, they're fulfilling because I don't know everything about every place. And everybody seems to think I know every single thing about every single place in the world, and I do not. Mm-hmm. But I have to learn or quickly 
figure out something to put something together. But my great asset is I have what's called on sites all around the world. So if I don't know something about a place, then I'll just look it up in our little consortia book and email them and say, I have somebody that wants to spend five nights, their budgets around this. What are some of the really cool things and great places for them to stay? And then we put a big trip together and mm-hmm. they're like, Oh, this is great. And that's it. Now, on, on payment, without getting too detailed, I just, I'm just i curious how it operates. So they've got a budget, let's say, of $20,000. They want to go see the pyramids. You line it up. You get the hotel. You get the plane, food, all that stuff for them. And, of course, now for your services, you're going to be paid. So what I'm wondering is, like, uh, there's a certain percentage that certain people get for doing certain services for people. Is that how you're paid, based on a percentage that is set? Or do you get like any other way to change that? Well, we're supposed to charge fees and I have not charged fees, but I think it's, I'm going to start Mm -hmm. the, we do get paid when we book through certain vendors Mm -hmm. and we'll mark it up to a little bit so we can get paid a little bit extra, but the average is 10%. Airline tickets, we do not get paid on unless somebody flies business class to Europe or overseas and we go through ticket brokers and we do get paid commission on those. And we like to go through ticket brokers because they have the big contracts with the airlines. So when the airlines screw everything up, whether it's a schedule change or a maintenance issue, they've got the power and they could move my clients a lot faster to a different airline than I could do it. Oh yeah. So we love them. We love them, adore them <laughs> and they make our life very easy. And then we hope that the hotels will have empathy because of the flight being screwed up, maybe from a thunderstorm and a misconnection, and they're not going to get there now till the following day, but their hotel room is $1,200 a night, and are they really going to lose that money because they weren't able to be there? Right, right. So, so, so <laughs> you're a diplomat in that respect to... Oh, know. we put out fires all the time. Oh, yeah. Put out fire and herd, we, cat, herd cats, too. <laughs> We as we herd cats, we push ropes, and we put out fires. <laughs> now, if, if and, baby, some, and babysit. If someone were, was didn't know at all what, what the heck we're talking about, and they just heard those three things, I would think fire per, uh, put her out. Or what are they called? Firemen, firewomen, firefighter. I would think that's a firefighter profession right there. <laughs> um, it is. I mean, you're on call all the time. I get phone calls sometimes at two o'clock in the morning. And when I see somebody at two in the morning and I know they're in London and I answer the phone, I go, why are you calling me? (laughs) They say, well, we took a chance on maybe getting you, but our daughter's got food poisoning. We got to get out of this hotel. You told us not to stay here and we did anyway. And can you move us to where you wanted us to stay? We don't care how much it costs. So I did. And I said, okay, start walking or get your taxi and head on. <laughs> and cool. your room is, your room is ready. Um, but I've missed some calls in the middle of the night too, because I slept through them. But, but see, yeah, that, we get calls a lot. Doing stuff like that. I mean, you don't need the internet so much to make that happen when you're talking about phoning the right person, you know? Right. Yeah. Internet does help, but I, ha- you know, it's, it's experience. So I know the good hotels and I could just look them up real quick on my phone and call them. 
and say, please, oh my gosh, this just happened. Can you, can you move some people around and make two rooms available? Cause I saw one online, but can you make two rooms available? And if you're really nice, they're, they're reservations people. If they're good, they know how to move people around so I can get what I want. Yeah. Well, that's good. That's good. So, yeah. So you have oh, yeah. To, you have to have like X-ray remote viewing vision, and you have to look around. You know, physically, this family needs to go yeah. here. They don't want to be in a shady place, but I know this is this and this. <laughs> and you're mentally just putting this whole movie together, and then you call, and make it happen. That's that's beautiful. And like you said, experience pays, right? Right there. Yes. Well, some people's like, why do I need a travel agent? I can book my own air and hotel. And I'm like, okay, fine. I'm never going to convince somebody they need to use a travel agent. But if they want a complicated trip, then it would probably be easier for them to use a travel agent or travel consultant is what we're really called now. Advisor, advisor. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you get in a jam, people like that to, to know they have somebody that's got their back and that knows people and that are connected. Mm-hmm. And we're pretty connected and we have a lot of resources. So our clients get really good treatment and it's nice too because when my clients go to the hotel they'll they'll meet somebody and they say yes i've talked to your travel agent i've talked to cynthia i know cynthia i saw her last year in las vegas at the travel show and then they're like oh my gosh really and then they come back and they go they knew you there at the hotel so the client likes that too it makes them feel a little extra special and clients depending on where they stay they'll get a bottle of wine when they check in or they'll get um, a $200 card to uh, spend for breakfast and lunch or whatever. So it's little extra benefits at, at these beautiful hotels all over the world that make them feel extra special. Yeah. I mean, that would make me feel special to have like a $200 gift card for my trouble. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I love that. And then you get to be like uh, Mrs. Claus and just pass out the goodies. <laughs> Sometimes I do, or sometimes people call me, they go, you will not believe the upgrade I just got because of you. <laughs> yeah, so you like, got, really? okay. you're an international woman of uh, unmister, unmister, uh, demystifying, there you go, the international <laughs> woman of demystification. <laughs> that's great. Well, that's only for the luxury properties. That doesn't work at embassy suites and okay, places like right. that. Yeah, just the, well, the, the, those, do those really even matter anymore anyway? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we book them, but not very often. Yeah. Well, that's it's great. It's rare. So, all right. Now, let me ask you this. Um, I want to talk a little bit more personal matter. We talked about okay. your major surgery that you had. And by the way, how okay. is that going present day? Are those two lungs just working fine for you now? They are, and I've named them. And <laughs> the name that I gave them is called Hoot and Holler. <laughs> so they are fantastic, and they... I got COVID right after Christmas and they, they were just doing great during COVID. I caught a cold even after COVID and they did well through that. I've had a couple of good little setbacks with um, rejection. I had rejection at the one year mark and some anemia and this, and this other issue that was all pharmaceutically related and we got it tweaked, and these lungs just keep on trucking. That is so cool. That is I so love cool. them. I love them. Yeah. 
So I hope they do you, do you, hope do, they do, love me. Do, do they give you like a uh, some kind of a, uh, a receipt or tag on where they came from, who donated? No. After one year, I'm able to write the donor a letter. So I wrote her a very small, direct kind of letter. Some people write pages and pages and tell the donor all about themselves. And I just didn't want to do that. I just wanted to make it more about the donor and say to the family, because I don't know. I just knew it was a female. She was under the age of 46, Mm -hmm. but had lungs of a teenager. So I don't, I mean, what is this? I don't know how old this person was. Is she a mom? Is she a daughter? Is she just a, um, is she an aunt? I mean, I don't, I don't know anything about this girl. So I just wrote a letter and to the family and started out by saying, I'm so sorry for your loss. After just recently losing my father, I know how some of your pain must feel. But I'm grateful that I was a good match with your daughter or with, with your loved one, your loved one. I had to say your loved one. and things are working out well and my doctors are caring for these lungs and I'm under close watch and you're an inspiration and Mm -hmm. I'm going to care for these for as long as I'm allowed. Are are you familiar with that movie? Basically. The movie by Will Will Smith started called Seven Pounds. Are you familiar with that? No. This is a really cool, detailed movie on donations, how he he knew that his time was coming, and he donated several parts of his body out. And kind of, at the end of the film, I won't give it away, but it kind of reminds me of the letter that you kind of wrote, to, a posthumous letter that you wrote, and thanks. Uh, yeah. you know, and the family got to read it, but you probably wrote it as if you're writing it to the actual person. Um, and or, or did you? I don't know. I'm assuming here. I wrote it to the family okay. of the person, right. but I don't know who it was to, if it was to mom and dad or mm-hmm. uh, a husband or kids. I don't know who I wrote it to, and they have not responded either. Okay, so you you just did it in good faith. This is a thank you, and I'm doing this. And But in the movie, yes. he donates um, a lot of life-giving things, and, and there was like a, a love interest, and... Um, and I won't I won't spoil the movie for you, but it's called Seven Pounds because I think that's how much okay. everything he donated from his body weighed in the end. Um, wow! And Will Smith movie not long ago I want to say mid nineties maybe two thousand ish, but it's inspiring. It's inspiring. Some of it's kind of terrifying too. So heads up for people that are easily um, I guess disturbed by um, things like that. You know. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, that's that's really cool that you were able to at least get that connection to the family and, and give you some closure and thanks for what was done for you. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've been an organ donor, too, and I, you know, it's on my driver's license to be an organ donor, and I can still mm-hmm. donate my organs. Yeah. Uh, nobody's going to want my kidneys, and no one can have my lungs, but right. hopefully whatever's left that's good, mm-hmm. everybody can have it. I've been in a couple of videos with Vanderbilt and another one is about to come out next month. Oh, cool. And I just told them, I said, why not be a donor? Because Uh why take this to the grave? What good is it going to do when you can help someone else? And Mm -hmm. I had that thought anyway, before I even was needing to have a transplant of any kind. Mm -hmm. Um, 
one of my cousin in-laws needed a liver transplant. And that's when I first started thinking about it. It's like, it's, it's kind of like when you die and you take your whole savings account and bury it with you, what good does that do? Yeah. Let do somebody you, else have it. Do something good with it. Same thing with your organs. The video that you did with Vanderbilt, is that something that is accessible through like YouTube, like with a URL or something we can go to? It's on Vanderbilt Health and it's been on my Facebook page. There's two of them. And a third one will be out this in April. I think it's donor month is April, maybe. I don't know. Okay. Um, we filmed it back in in December. I think early December. Would you be like Would that. you be opposed to me locating it and inserting at least the audio portion into our podcast? Okay, so maybe we can talk about the, you know being a donor um, uh, for other people. You know, people tuning into this podcast because it seems like so far every podcast I've done with classmates, someone's had a different, unique take on their life story, what they're focusing on, and we have not had anyone talk that much in depth about donating. Um, you know, in transplant type things and, and successful ones too. And we're about to release Doug's interview. He'll be talking a little bit about it. Um, but that's so exciting to know that people can help you and you can help others. Well, yeah. And it's nothing. It, mm -hmm. it, uh, it's cost you nothing. And when you die, you don't know, you don't know what happens to you. Mm -hmm. um, you either are buried or you're cremated. So you don't know if they take your organs out and if there's, if you check the yes and you make everybody around you familiar enough to know that when you do die, especially if it's a last minute kind of thing. Yeah. I want my, I want to donate my organs and it's, it's absolutely nothing. And I mean, there's, you can say I'm healthy and I died. And everybody knew I wanted to donate my organs, but depending on how I died and where I died and how long I had been gone, would they be able to do anything with them? Maybe right. yes, maybe no. Most, most of the time you have to be on life support and then they take you off life support to harvest your organs. And mm -hmm. that's kind of how that works. Yeah. The tissues are still so, fresh and connected and vital uh, and usable. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's easy but complicated at the same time. But to, to make the decision to do it is, to me, it's the right thing to do. And that's not just because I had my own lung transplant, but I've always thought that way anyway. Okay, yeah. That's, it's like, why not? Right. Why not do it? And, you know, uh, what am I going to be doing with my body? I mean, heck, I'm probably going to end up with another one of some other kind anyway. Hopefully, a, you know, like a, like a Bugatti, you know, something a little more. Uh, yeah, why not a Bugatti? With, a, with, a Hemi, not? with another Hemi or two. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I hear you. Yeah, so why not? So, I mean, I do think it's important. I don't, I don't shout this stuff out from the rooftops, and I don't post a whole lot about it just because I don't want to wear people out over it. And it's, it's a complicated, I have a complicated life right now. Very, very complicated. Mm -hmm. And I told my doctor about a month ago, I said, for the first time, I'm finally mad. I said, I'm angry now of all the restrictions that I have in my life. Mm -hmm. I said, but don't get me wrong. I'm grateful I have a life. Right, right. But because I'm feeling so good, I see all of my restrictions. Mm -hmm. And it's aggravating. Is it kind and of, I wanna, is, is it like uh, being in a plastic bubble? Well, a little bit. You know, I mean, I'm not supposed to be out without a mask and mm -hmm. 
and so I try not to be, but every now and then I forget to put one on, and then I hope, and if it's crowded wherever I'm going, then I just turn around and leave, mm-hmm. or go back and get a mask, or ask somebody, do you have any masks, do you have any masks, and if they don't, then I'll leave, if they do, I'll put it on, um, but like food restrictions, I can't eat salads out at restaurants, no fresh fruit or vegetables at a restaurant, mm-hmm. which is really is it, terrible is for it me. because you don't know that it's been completely cleaned, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah because I can pick up bacteria. The, mm. A lung transplant person is one of the most immune-suppressed people walking around. Oh, wow. Because our lungs are exposed to the outside air, and most other organs or all the other organs are not. Mm. So they're confined inside the body, and so you don't have to be so immune-suppressed. Oh, yeah. But I with see all that. the Yeah. So... Yeah. Lucky me. Yeah. Well, yeah, lucky you and, and lucky you. I mean, 20 minutes is pretty a mir- miracle, you know, to find it so quickly. Oh, um, my gosh, it was. All my friends here and my coworkers were like, thank God it was just 20 minutes. We wouldn't have been able to live with Cynthia <laughs> had it been much longer. Yeah, I saw, so yeah, it speaking, worked out speaking perfectly. Speaking of functional masks for someone in your situation, I saw a quick YouTube inserted advertisement of some somebody in Japan, a company has made a full face plastic mask with the filtration <laughs> below, and they're blowing on it with their mouth and nose, and it's not fogging up. It has anti fog material. It's durable. You see the whole face of the person. It looks light. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe one day in the future they'll they'll come out with something, uh, you know, really really easy and good for people that need to wear a mask like that um, into something that looks more fashionable and, and, you know, huh? Well, you probably won't see me in that because I, I mean, I hate just wearing the regular surgical masks. And when, I mean, it was kind of nice when everybody had to wear the masks. And now that people are not wearing the masks and I'm like, Oh, I don't want to wear a mask, but <laughs> everybody around me already knows yeah. they all, they all know. And they're like, Hey, Cynthia, where's your mask? I'm like, Oh shoot. I forgot it. Yeah. Well, there so you, there's the support again. Everybody, watch out for me. Oh, I've yeah. got it. I mean, that's that's over half the battle is the support group, mm-hmm. and I'm very, very fortunate, and I'll just say it, blessed to have the people around me that I have around me that yeah. genuinely care. And I was grateful that my mother was still living, and she stayed in Nashville with me for eight months, and my nieces and my brother helped out some, and mm-hmm. and then of course all my friends and. Um, everybody just really rallied for me and I had no idea I would have the outpouring of support that I got. It was, mm-hmm. it was all by accident. You know, I just put it out there on Facebook at the last second cause I didn't have time to plan anything. And the support from all my travel friends from all around the world was absolutely amazing. And now when they come into the office, they're like, how are you? How are you? You don't even look like you've been sick. <laughs> so, well, that, yeah, that's good. That miracle of modern medication, well, not necessarily medication, uh, but modern practice and science. And that technology. well, I mean, you just thank God for their intellect. I mean, I don't have that intellect, and I can't even pronounce half the drugs that I take. The words are just so crazy. But thank God for the doctors and the nurses. I mean, even people that are mopping the floor in your hospital room and all the. Um, PT people and the OT people and um, the assistants and just everything, everything that's related to a hospital and doctor's offices. It's, it's all a miracle. 
that they have that intellect to do what they do. Oh yeah, it's, it's just so great, especially Western medication. Uh, and when I say that, I mean Western uh, technology with health-related, anything health-related falls right. under that big umbrella of Western medication. It it and, does, and you can't mix. You cannot mix Western medication with herbs. Oh yeah, you can have some you serious serious problems there. Uh, rejection. Yeah, supplements. I mean, everything I do. I have to run through my pharmacist, my transplant pharmacist. Mm-hmm. I'm assigned one and she knows everything I take. And I have to say, can I take this? Can I take that? And I wanted to drink this ginger tea. Nope. Nope. Can't do that. No matcha tea. I'm like, okay, I want to try all this fun, trendy stuff. Nope. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Forever. I had a friend of mine who told me they uh, were on the Gerson uh, cure program. It's not a cancer treatment. It's a Gerson cancer cure program. that's not allowed in the U S but in Tijuana, they went down there and paid like, I don't know, $20,000. And one of the odd mm. things on that diet, it was heavily fresh fruits, vegetables, and juices, no water juices instead. And the really odd thing, very rarely use a banana, uh, maybe once a week. Um, and no soy, no soy of anything because the Gerson program says that the soy really largely is so processed it's going to be counter uh, productive to what they're trying to do which is purge all these uh, cells that don't work in your body and it they see wow. really good results um but you know big pharma wow. would rather us just not know about that <laughs> well i know and i uh, I mean, you love big pharma and you hate big pharma at the same time. Right. They do do some great things, but, and I'm just only speaking for lungs because that's what I know, but the average survival rate of a double lung transplant recipient is five years, five to six years. Wow. That's the national average. Yeah. And the average at Vanderbilt is 11. But I mean, I feel like I could live 20 right. or 30 years. I mean, literally, I feel like nothing's ever happened. Right. But what kills you are the drugs. It's the drugs that kill you. Yeah, yeah. It's not the lungs. It's the drugs. And, I mean, I can already see things from the drugs I've been taking, and it's only been a year and a half. Would stem cell, would stem cell, the modern day stem cell therapy, would that be kind of dangerous for you being a transplant recipient? Because the stem cells are geared toward what you produce, your body, and now you have these foreign lungs. Would that, would they bump heads? Yeah. Oh, I, I know nothing about that, but that's a cancer thing typically, and mm-hmm. stem cell transplants are tricky too because they that is also a very high rate of rejection the first year. So you have to be extremely immune suppressed for the first year. And then after that, it gets better. That's all I know about stem cells, but that's, that's really tricky, very tricky transplant. Well, there's also a better way that you just use your own stem cells. That's a new thing on the block right now. Yeah. Recycling your own material. Um, Well, they're working on some, some, something where they can take some part of dna out of you and hopefully at some point in time you won't have to be on rejection drugs and they need to hurry up and figure that out like tomorrow 
Oh, yeah. And then I wouldn't have to take all these drugs. I just, I feel for but. people who have rare uh, disorders or diseases who lose hope because I think a lot of the professions, professional doctors are woefully undereducated. I mean, they're very brilliant in certain things, but I think a lot of information is just simply withheld from them because it goes against the standard narratives. So you got all these people with rare disorders that are suffering that could possibly be cured by something very simple, maybe even herbal. True. I mean, true. I did just, uh, I know a girl that was just diagnosed with cancer in uh, January 3rd, and she just died two days ago from it. It was a very rare sarcoma cancer. And um, so she was being treated at Vanderbilt, and MD Anderson was following up with everything to be sure you know, she was on the right path. And she was. It's just really rare and uh, gone, lickety split. And extremely sad she's my age and really really sad and it's you just didn't have time to research it and and get on a good plan it was you know she had to be blasted with chemo and it just it did her in that's sad that's sad. It's so sad to see people that could have had a better life but it's just you know i don't think i'll do that it sounds too weird and you know michael landon was down there getting the gerson thing and he had some big, oh, he was? big friends of his, wealthy, you know, pharmaceutical people. Hey, we got this new thing we want to try on you, Michael. So he left. He had a relationship down there with a lady friends. Uh, had the same thing, pancreatic. Well, he leaves, and he ends up dying with this modern treatment. And she lived another 20 years. This was on, like, a Netflix special on Gerson. Just, just sadness like that. People who are programmed into thinking, you know, there's no other way, you know. But... Whatever the case may be, you know, we, we live and learn and we get another chance, you know, like I'm hoping for another better body next time. And, uh, you know, <laughs> yes, 2. Me too. 0, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so it's not all, it's, it's not all bad. No. And I mean, I have a great quality of life right now and I just got cleared to travel in the United States. So that's good. And well, that's when good, work yeah. settles down a little bit, I'll probably right. need to go somewhere soon and. Well, you're going, to travel, you're, going to, you're going to travel to Knox Angeles from Nash Vegas, right, in July. I know. Well, I, <laughs> that's the only place I've been mm -hmm. since this whole thing's happened is Knoxville, Knoxville, Knoxville. Mm -hmm. So I'm ready to go do and see something else. So my supposedly my first out-of-the-country trip is going to be the Turks and Caicos mm -hmm. sometime this summer. So hopefully that can that can all work out and I stay continue to stay stable. But this is not something I want to be defined as, as a lung transplant recipient. I'm happy to talk about it just like I have tonight with you. Mm -hmm. And I talk about it to Vanderbilt. But I just, I want to be regular Cynthia, who just is a little flitty and fun and likes to go out and enjoy right. dinners and things with my friends mm -hmm. and travel and not have big worries and burdens and things hanging over my head all the time and just be sort of footloose and fancy free and i'm beginning to turn that corner to to be that cynthia again my original cynthia not not transplant cynthia i, I hear a motto i hear a new fresh motto in life for you coming on what would be uh -oh. your motto in life you just gotta live you gotta live without regrets that's good don't look back right well, I mean, I'll look back, but you just got to try to live without regrets and do the right thing mm -hmm. and find what makes you happy. Well, that's legal. Let, let's look back right now, back to 82 era when you were in high school, <laughs> young, and 
um, you know, footloose and fancy free back then for sure. Where did you hang out uh, for your big giant um, friendship gathering places? Oh my gosh. Well, a lot of times it was at my parents' pools. People would come over and would hang out by the pool. Mm-hmm. But then there were, I think mostly it was Mr. Gaddy's and Swenson's. Oh, yeah. yeah. I believe at Downtown West, I right. believe that was the main place. Or we would go to somebody's house for a slumber party. Mm-hmm. And that was about it. I mean, right. I think, I mean, it was pretty simple times. And so when I went to MTSU for college, People talked about in the smaller towns cruising the strip, going from Sonic to the mall or something like that. Uh-huh. And so when I went home with this girl one weekend, that's that's what they did. And I thought, what is this? <laughs> I've never heard of this before. You're cruising down the road and there's a Sonic. I never even heard of Sonic. I don't even know that Knoxville had Sonics at that time. Probably not. And um, and I just thought it was so funny. I'm like, oh my gosh, no. We would just like hang out. It was at Mr. Gaddy's or Swenson's. Mm-hmm. I believe those were the main places where we would go and hang out. Yeah. You, 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 many people have said those two. Certainly Mr. Gaddy's have been the number one spot. I think it was their buffet coupled with their huge television set. Um, and you could also yes. order order your own special pizza, too. I think Cece right. stole that idea. <laughs> <laughs> I've not eaten at Cece's, but yeah, Mr. Gaddy's, because Swenson's was next door to Mr. Gaddy's. Oh yeah, right next door. And I told told uh, Robin I I worked there for a while, and you know you got a free dessert with every meal, and people would just send those back there uneaten. So of course that was my dinner a lot of times. <laughs> oh my goodness, <laughs> uh, uh, the good fun simple times of uh, the early eighties. Oh yeah. It was it was great. It and, was and great. The video I, games, I loved high school. The video games you had to work for them. You had to put a quarter to play them, and you better be yep. good at it. Pac Man. Yeah, but now the, the people are at home. There's no cost. You know, you just gotta you know have enough electricity and Wi-Fi. But we had to pay for our high scores back then, boys and girls. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I didn't do that very often. I was not very good at that, but. It was fun whenever I did do it. Well, you you remember yeah, the, the pong, do you remember the pong game in the mid seventies, the one that started them all, right? It was tennis pong. Bloop, bloop, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we're gonna have a pong contest at the reunion. Oh so my goodness! I'm gonna keep it real simple because that way you'll be able to have a drink in one hand and your pong thing in the <laughs> other, and still kind of do halfway good. <laughs> Oh but now gosh, we start pulling hilarious. up the Pac-Man Waka Wakas up there, you know, and the defenders. Of, you're not going to do so hot, but you know, anybody oh can turn God. a Pong dial, right? <laughs> Hope, hopefully, hopefully. But uh, so high school, I think about high school, and it was so much fun. And there's always something on Facebook that says, if you could go back to high school, would you do it again? And my answer is always yes. Oh, yeah. And I'm so shocked to see all the people that said no, that they hated high school. Yeah. And then to find out people from other classes at Farragut, whether it's 1981 or 1983, how they hated high school. And I'm like, how did you hate high school? Yeah. And then, you know, even in college, people talked about how they hated high school. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I, I remember crying yeah. on, at graduation, standing in line, waiting you know, to, to be called. And in tears because I'm leaving high school. I did it the was, same thing. I cried too. I swear I did. 
Oh, I just, I loved it. I have so many great memories and what was your favorite teacher? All my friends. What was your favorite teacher that you had or a couple of favorite teachers? Do you remember any that stood out? Well, I mean, I know some that stand out. Were they favorites? Uh, I don't know. I mean, they, they wouldn't know me from Adam, but I mean, I had Mr. Norman. I loved him. He was cute. Um, <laughs> Mrs. Latagura. I don't know if you remember her, yeah, Mrs. Becker yeah. in English and uh, Mrs. Zahoya in Spanish. She was funny. Um, golly. Uh, I don't remember the others. Uh -huh. It's terrible to say. Well, it was 40, 40 years ago in your defense. Um. <laughs> but I never had special relationships with teachers like a lot of people did. You know, and I see all these sports people that want to go back to school because they had some teacher that had this big impact on them. There was not a teacher that had a big impact on me, nor did I on them, I guess. Well, like the Ken, so, Spark, the Ken Spark story really heavily impacted Jeff Jocelyn. And right. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and tell this anecdote. I, we were, I was a classic bench warmer. Theater and arts was my thing. My dad wanted me to be on the right. football team. But anyway, <laughs> I'm in, it's after a game one day. We're all sitting downstairs right when you enter the back of the gymnasium in the huge area where you played battle ball. We're sitting down. We're still in our sweaty uniform. Coach Sparks comes over for a debriefing. I think we – I can't remember if we won or lost the game. It didn't really matter. But I do remember this. Jeff, our quarterback, he's sitting over there, and he was mouthing off about something. Like he was all that in a bag of chips. And, and Ken Sparks overheard what he said. And he, looked, he pointed his finger. He looked him directly in the eye, and he dressed him down right there in front of everybody. And I really believe it was that signaling event that really turned Jeff around and made him start thinking the Ken Sparks way or the Ken Sparks philosophy, which is, of course, there's no I in team and humble yourself, right. you know, humble. Your, I want to quote a famous rap song right now. Humble yourself. Or maybe it should be a country song, right? <laughs> Be, be humble, be. be humble. And I think it really got his attention because after that, he got the message. He was a completely different leader and quarterback, and it shows now in his life and how he's dedicated this movie um, about Coach Sparks. Well, um, I think probably so. I mean, of course, I don't know that story, but I mean, I think it's great when people have had some fantastic influence whether it's a school teacher or someone from your church, youth group. I was heavily involved with my youth group at Cokesbury Methodist. Oh, and yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I loved that. And um, so I don't know. I mean, I just, I had a taste of so many little different things that seemed in high school and I loved every bit of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cokesbury, they still do celebrate recovery meetings um, in Knoxville. They're yes. a big part of that right now. They are a big part of that, so I'm I'm proud of them for doing that. I think it's I think that's very important. Mm -hmm. Well, what what kind of music important. what kind of music inspired you back then? What were some of your favorite bands or or artists in the eighties? Oh, you know, I was like the typical common girl. I loved everything like Casey and the Sunshine Band, okay. Cool and the Gang, all those. And okay. when I went, I got to go to a Super Bowl in San Diego. Maybe it was twenty years ago. I don't remember, 15 years ago, possibly. And Casey and the Sunshine Band was playing a pregame show. And oh, so it was cool in the game. And Earth, Wind, and Fire. And I'm like, oh, yeah. no way. <laughs> oh, my 
gosh. And I knew every word to every song. <laughs> and it was, that's like my happy music. Now yeah. I just listen to it. Nothing is just, you know, really just knocks my socks off. But mm-hmm. uh, that, the good old 80s music, some of the 90s music, I really love. And yeah. I don't, I do not like rap music of any kind. So. I quit listening to the radio when that was all it, you know, all they would be playing. Yeah, I remember the celebration. Was, celebration is a is a popular song to play after a victory of some kind, and um, well, we played it all the time at Farragut. Oh yeah, yeah, celebrate good times. And then what was that yeah. guy that came along and uh, get happy? You know, he tried to steal that song away, but I wouldn't let it happen. Not when I celebrated. <laughs> uh, when we did, you know, I used to oh, train people, know. and we would at the end of graduation, I'd always play that going out to the car. Last thing they heard. Oh, such fun times! Such fun times. Yeah, and, and it sounds like um, you've had a real fun time with, uh, uh, you know, enjoying reminiscing. And it's, oh, it's well, be I'm still even, good friends with my high school friends. I'm oh, yeah. still really when I come home on the weekends. There's about four or five people that I call, and we go out and do stuff most of the time. And and even some of those that don't live in town, I'm in touch with them regularly. So, I don't know. I probably stay in touch with, say, 10 people. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't sound like a lot, but um, I stay in touch with about 10, maybe 15 people mm-hmm. constantly That's from great. Farragut, that which is, is good. Great. I mean, That's... stay in touch with for my, my college friends. I've got you know, probably three, four really good college friends, mm-hmm. but nothing like my high school friends. Well, an opportunity is coming up for everybody to get together with your high school well, friends July the 9th. I know. I'm excited. It's always so fun to see people when when I do come in town and I'll run into someone at the mall or mm-hmm. um, or just at a restaurant. It's like, wow, my gosh. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some people don't even recognize and or they may not even recognize me, but uh, you know we, we're we're anxious to see everybody. It's going to be a really nice reunion. I want to be. I want it to re- be like our ten year when there was a billion people there, and we ho- it holds about four hundred people, so we have room for everyone. Um, well, I hope that it's a good showing, and I know it's always tough, and the older we get, the less people show up. So I hope that mm-hmm. I hope that people do show up, and and so many people ask me. Well, how many people were in your class? I said, well, we had about 750, but I think six-something graduated. Right, right. And 650 or something like that graduated. And I said, and I still think we are the largest graduating class in Farragut. I don't know that as a fact, but it's it's if we're not the largest, we're close. Not that that means anything. And then they, they say, well, how do you know people when your high school is that big? I'm like, oh, my gosh. I said, well, we had like a – one big running click it seemed to be of about 200 people and then of course you had all your (laughs) close-knit friends but it seems whether you really knew people or not like I knew you but were we friends and did anything together no but I knew who you were and I knew to say hi Vic and I think you probably knew who I was to say hi Cynthia yeah yeah but at least you knew you knew so many people and and it was a huge class, so I felt like I knew half the class. Not great, but at what? least I knew their name and their face. Right. Some people, you know, when you compare, like, going to a mega church, you know, you don't get to know anybody. But then when you start segregating by people you know, age group, and likes, then you can develop those closer relationships. But one of the positive things about our class, when we were freshmen, we were almost a 1,000. 
which is like half the entire school. So when someone's, I did not getting, know that. someone's getting picked on out on the front commons, you know, you get swarmed like an army of ants on a Snickers bar. Get off that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know we had that big of a freshman class. Uh, yeah, wow. yeah. It was pretty much between 950 and about 980. But we dwindled wow. on through the years. And Troy corrected me. He said that when we started senior year, it was at 714. And then, of course, we ended up graduating, like you said, about six and a half. And someone from the class of 88 chimed in on Facebook and thinks that their class was about that size. So I'm, i got to make a call still to the school to verify 88 or not. But I've been calling yes, everywhere else. I've been calling McGavick in Memphis. I think we were the biggest in the state so far ever. Really? Yeah, yeah. I thought McGavick had a bigger class than we did or, or larger population. I don't know. All right, well, yeah, I don't that's know. What, that was my I assumption, too. I actually spoke to someone wow. who works there now from the class of 80s when she grew up in Knoxville, and she gave me a lead contact Department of Education. I'm constantly contacting my old friends at the state, and no one's returning anything. I think I may be getting a lead now on LinkedIn. There's a new director over there with records. So I'm going to verify it. I'll know by July 9th, and I'll, reveal, I'll make the big reveal on stage when we do the door oh, prizes. Oh, fun. Well, fun. <laughs> Sounds great. No, I think you're doing a great job, Vic, and trying to get everybody excited about the reunion, and I hope everybody does get excited about the reunion. I'm beginning to get excited. It's hard for me to get excited way far in advance. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, a month or two, then I start to start to focus on it. Thank you for your support, and thank you for the kind words and for doing this interview um, at the behest of your good friend, Robin Page Sharp, who said, you've got to get Cynthia <laughs> My on. My gosh. I'm like, there's nothing interesting for me to talk about. <laughs> but look uh, look what we talked about all night. It. You know, it's very interesting, very uh, interesting for me. Well, well, I'm glad you're interested. I hope everybody else finds something interesting in this. I don't know. To me, I find it all boring about myself, but if it's okay with you, in the in the show notes for this edition, this episode, I'm going to put links to find out how to be a donor and how people can be a donor statewide and locally. Oh, yeah. um, and that that will be some productivity we're getting done here with this interview. Um, other than that inter has a purpose. Yeah, your interesting past still, I think, is very purposeful. Um, <laughs> yeah, the tra the traveling is always the most fun part. Oh yeah, about. I tell you, I want to go somewhere. I want to go like to St. Croix, and I want you to line it up. <laughs> oh, I love St. Croix, yes. But I love the crazy places, too, like Seychelles and Bhutan and Patagonia. I want to go to Antarctica. That's my big big trip oh, yeah. I want to go next. And I asked fun. my doctor if I could go. Mm -hmm. He said, we'll talk about it. The first doctor went, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then the second one goes, well, well, we'll talk about it. I said, what if I get a free travel agent rate? Would you take it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, here, so, here, here's somebody for you to Google and look up the stories. A guy named Henry Rollins. He was the lead singer in the 80s of the band Black Flag. And he is a world traveler. Just go to your podcast platform, Apple, what have you. Type in Henry Rollins, R-O-L-L-I-N-S. And he tells about, and he's been to all seven of these continents, they call. Oh, he's wow. been everywhere. And he, he almost got shot. Wow. He's been in, in the middle, thought there was a drug deal. I mean, he's had all kinds of stuff happen to him. And he doesn't care. He's just a free spirit. You got to hear what he has to say. Um, wow. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, my uh, my travels aren't that exciting. <laughs> well, you've been on the safe side too, you know. Safe, safe I've been. I played it. I play it safe. <laughs> I do play it safe. 
Well, thank but you. Yeah, there's some links you can find on Vanderbilt Health uh, okay. on Facebook. All right, I'm going to put that up you there for everybody. And get your video links too of the the spots that you've done for Vandy, and get that up there and let people well, see it. Um, but hey, do you have anything well, else you want to say before we wrap up tonight? Thank you for being my guest. Um, you've covered a lot well, of material. Well, thank you for having me on here. I appreciate it, and I hope I see a whole lot of familiar faces on July ninth. It'll be a lot of fun. Oh yeah. It will be. And thank you again for being a great interviewee and uh, have a great evening. Well, and take care of those. Thank uh, you. What, what did you call? Ho- um, ho- ho- hoot and holler. Hoot, hoot and holler. I almost said. Because I can hoot and holler. I don't want to tell you what I almost said. Okay. <laughs> well, we're out of here. Thank you, Cynthia. Awesome. Thank uh, you, Vic. Ho- great hollering. talking to you. All right. We'll see you. <laughs> Yeehaw. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us today to the Big Blue Podcast for Farragut High School. If you're interested in becoming an interviewee, please send correspondence to the following email address, also listed in the show notes. Send all correspondence to FHSBigBlue1982 at gmail.com. Again, that's FHSBigBlue1982 at gmail.com. Stanley Thompson! Come over here, Stanley! Hey, how you doing? Oh, real good, real good. You're okay? Oh, sure. Hey, that's one high-priced piece of goods you're wearing there, Stanley, my man. Hey, you must be doing real good. Oh, I have no complaints, financially speaking. Is that right? Yeah, you see, I'm uh, the waiter at uh, the Park Pavilion. Oh, great. They promoted you from busboy. I don't think you understand. That means that I make $20,000 a year. That's just in salary. I make another 40000 in tips, of which I declare about 10000 which gives me the equivalent of about $100,000 a year. Now, how are you doing, Louie? Well, not nearly as good, I- I'm afraid to say. I've only got a civil service job. I'm an auditor for the Internal Revenue Service. <laughs> I'm Adam Brown, owner of Tennessee School of Beauty. I look forward to meeting with you personally and welcoming you into our TSB family. And if you're currently attending another school and you're not pleased with the level of education you're receiving, give us a call. We have specialty classes for transfer students. We'll gladly accept all of your hours and we'll quickly get you moving forward with your dreams of becoming a licensed salon professional. to have kind of a unique conversation here on Facebook Live, talking with one of our surgeons and a patient all about lung transplant. This is such an important topic and we've got just a phenomenal story to share with you today. So I'd like to introduce Dr. Kira Shaver, who's here with us, um, as well as Cynthia Kerr. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Glad to have you both here. So um, why don't we first um, let each of you introduce yourselves. Dr. Shaver, would you like to go first? 
Sure, my name is Dr. Shaver. I came to Vanderbilt back in 2007 for my residency and fellowship and then stayed on as one of our transplant pulmonologists. So I'm delighted to be able to take care of patients like Ms. Kerr on a daily basis. Great. And what about you, Cynthia? Well, I'm Cynthia Kerr and I've lived in Nashville for 30 years. I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee. And after college, I settled in Nashville, started working and got into the travel business and then got this lung issue three years ago, and here I am, post-transplant. Well, you are setting the stage perfect. Let's dive right in. Tell me a little bit about what life was like for you prior to becoming a lung transplant recipient, what your experience was with healthcare, and just had you ever even been hospitalized for any sort of breathing issue? <laughs> no. So i in the travel business. So, you know, I go everywhere and been to lots of third world countries and, and just really all over the place, probably 50 something countries, maybe. So I had this one experience about a breathing issue and I went to my internist and, you know, got a little shot and um, a little Z pack and I was great until the next year. I had just broken my ankle so that was my first surgical experience. It was outpatient surgery. And, um, and then a few months later, the breathing issue came back again. And, you know, quick story was went back to see him. Then I went to my allergist and then I was um, sent to a pulmonologist. And then I left that pulmonologist and went to Vanderbilt to see Dr. Robert Miller. And, um, and then it went on from there. And yes, my transplant surgery was my first ever hospital stay. So it was a wow. nice introduction. Wow. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So Dr. Shaver, can you share about the first time you met Cynthia? Of course. So I met Cynthia last summer in clinic and my first impression of her was really her enthusiasm and her motivation for transplant. She came with a binder with her questions and actually asked me if, if she could record me on an iPad so she, that she could review the information we went over. Uh, she was with one of her friends who had just as many questions as Ms. Kerr. Um, and it was a really fun back and forth conversation about her experiences with her lung disease and me explaining transplant. And I think the other thing that really struck me is I think Ms. Kerr was much sicker than she realized. I think she had done a great job coping with her lung disease and just had no idea uh, how unwell she was. And, and I think was a little bit surprised that we thought it was time for her to have a transplant. But it was a very pleasant clinic visit with lots of laughing um, and just excitement about, about the transplant process and what we, what we could offer her to get her back to a normal life. I love that. I love that you came so prepared for your appointments and were so engaged in your healthcare. That is so important. And I know we love seeing that in our patients. Tell us a little bit more, Cynthia, about getting that second opinion and maybe even give us a little more color of day-to-day -day life before your transplant versus maybe today. Well, um, so when I went to see Dr. Miller, my coworker said, Cynthia, I'm taking charge. You're going to see Dr. Robert Miller. I said, really? She goes, yes, you're going to see Dr. Miller. He's the best there is. And she goes, I'm going to get you in there. And so she called his office and said, you've got to get my coworker in. She needs to see you. And so I went in there and um, we had 
conversations, of course, and I ask a lot of questions. And yes, I do bring a notebook and I have it beside me right now. In fact, one of the pharmacists came in and said, okay, I did three hole punch because Dr. Shaver said you put everything in a three ring binder. I'm like, how does she remember that from all those months ago? So that was funny and really impressive too, because there are lots of things now I don't remember. But anyway, Dr. Miller, he did approach me about a lung transplant about a year and a half into um, my meetings and appointments with him. And I, of course, was stunned. And then last March, I know he was going to bring it up to me again because I could tell I was getting worse Mm -hmm. and I just couldn't do the pulmonary function test. That was when COVID started. I'm in the travel business. We're watching our, our business just crumble and as fast as it can and cancel trips and clients that were all upset. You know, it was just a big mess last March. So we didn't talk about it in March, but June, he brought it up. And then, of course, I got in to see Dr. Shaver. And yes, she did tell me I was much worse than I thought because I was able to cope. But I knew I was getting worse, too. Things were getting um, much worse and fairly quickly, too. So and my mom could tell. I mean, everybody could tell. And of course, I was the last one willing to admit I knew it, but I didn't want to say it out loud because, of course, that means it's real. Sure. So I, um, we just got on the ball and then, you know, got into the whole evaluation week and what fun experience that was, but it was kind of well, nice. Let's pause to be for a second. Out. Before we go into the evaluation, I want to hear from Dr. Shaver about what are those characteristics? What were you looking for? What did you see in Cynthia that made her a good candidate for a lung transplant? I think there's really, I mean, there's obviously a lot of medical things that we look at, but in terms of of the type of person that's a great candidate, there's really three things that I look for. The first is the patient needs to be really motivated to fight for their health. And in in a very goal-oriented person, transplant can be complicated, but like Dr. Like Ms. Kerr said, we walk people through the process, but motivation is key. The second thing is patients really need to have a strong support system and whether that's family or friends, uh, doesn't matter as long as you have an army of people that will work with you to get you through the tough parts of transplant and be able to celebrate the good parts. And I think the last thing is patients need to be flexible Um, There's lots of wonderful things about transplant, but there's some bumps in the road. And so when our patients get to a bump, they need to understand that we have a plan and they need to be flexible to work with us to to accomplish the goals necessary to get them through those bumps. Well, here, I've just met Cynthia here on Zoom, and I can already see why you would say that she was a good candidate for that. So um, I think those are really good things to be thinking about. So You talked about the evaluation week. You just briefly touched on that, Cynthia. Tell us a little bit more about that when you were being evaluated to be a lung transplant candidate. Well, there's like 24 appointments uh, during the week. So mine was not able to be finished in seven days. And we had to change one of the um, uh, appointments to a sniff test. And I can't say the proper name. It's a esophageal manometry exam and that was not working. So we had to switch it to a sniff test, which kind of delayed things, but you know, it's a lot of lab work and a breathing test and COVID test and a heart cath and EKG. I mean, they are looking at everything. So it was interesting. It sounds frightening, but it's also interesting. 
And each visit, each doctor would say, I don't see why you wouldn't be a candidate. You know, everything looks good from my end. And so that was really reassuring. And you, you get a good work, you know, a health workup too, which was really nice and comforting, but it was busy. It kind of reminded me of our travel weeks that we would have where you're visiting one vendor to another every four minutes. And so I'm like, okay, I, I get this pace. And so it was a little bit of a rush, but yes, I was tired in between because my walking wasn't so great because my breathing wasn't so great. And, you know, you had to take deep breaths, try to after about every second word. But I bet it was also exciting for you thinking about that all of this was going to lead to hopefully a really positive change in your Definitely. health, which I can, I can see clearly you, you seem just remarkable. Yes. You know, there's still a few little things I'm still recovering and, but really for the most part, I kept telling them, I said, I don't even feel like I've had surgery. It was more of uh, just being tired afterwards. Cause I didn't really have much pain or that I remember because of that miracle epidural that they give you, which I've is, had three kids. So I know about the miracle epidural. <laughs> yes. I was like, can we keep that in for a while? And they're like, no. But, and your transplant was in September, right? Yes, it was. I was called on September 17th. I don't know if you want me to go into the details on how that happened, but, and Dr. Shaver knows something that I completely forgot because I think I just went into shock. So I was on the list on the 17th and I said, okay, great. I go, I have to go because I got to meet Ashley at the Dayani for rehab. And I got to eat lunch before I go there. And my rehab appointment was at one. So at 1220, I go as fast as I can out the door to get Wits barbecue, turkey sandwich to eat quickly to be at Dayani at one. And at 1240, my phone rings. I'm like, this is, this is a car warranty service company calling me and I'm like should I do I mean this can't be this is up to 20 minutes later and um um and I go ahead and answer the phone and it was Vanderbilt saying they had lungs for me wow and I was in shock could not believe it in fact I don't even remember telling Shelly I think it was that I'd call her back and uh, and I was thinking, okay, so have we checked into everything? Do I really need, you know, you start questioning and doubting everything at that moment. Cause I was certainly not prepared for it to be that fast, but we went through. Wow. And what a great yes. story. Dr. Shaver. So I love seeing you smile. I'm sure that's so exciting. Every time those calls happen and, and you get to, you know, change someone's life with a transplant. Talk a little bit about Vanderbilt's multidisciplinary collaborative team um, and maybe a little bit about what you'd like your pulmonologist in the community to know about referring a patient when the, that right time is, a little bit of that type of information. Right. So Vanderbilt Lung Institute and the Vanderbilt Transplant Center really bring together our multidisciplinary experts in pulmonology and thoracic surgery. So when we meet patients who are referred for transplant, one of the things we want to make sure is that we've used every other treatment modality that we can. So we have lots of different pulmonary subspecialists and proceduralists who could 
offer things like lung volume reduction surgery and endobronchial valves and antifibrotic therapy for fibrosis, different things like that. So we try to exhaust all of those things with our multidisciplinary team and, and we're confident that we have all the specialists that we need to take care of anything that might happen to our transplant candidates or our transplant recipients. In terms of referral, I think the most important message for our community pulmonologists is that our door is open to you. So we can always be contacted by phone or through our website for an online referral or a phone call to talk about a patient. If we think a patient is a potential transplant candidate, we'll schedule them in our clinic within a few weeks and move forward as we need to. Um, I think it's better for us to see patients earlier in the disease process rather than later, because sometimes there's modifiable things with a patient that we can work on to make transplant uh, more successful for the patients. Um, our phone number is 615-936-0393. And you can either uh, leave a message or talk to one of us directly and we'll get back to you to work through that referral process. Great, that's such good information. Cynthia, I heard that you had a family member that had a transplant a few years before you did. And so I'd just love to know what you want people to know about organ donation. Well, it was crazy. She's a cousin-in-law and she had a rare liver disease called Wilson's disease. So she was in three different hospitals. And the third one was University of Tennessee Medical Center. And the doctor there goes, I think this is Wilson's disease. And one of the 10 Wilson disease specialists was at Vanderbilt. So he sent the information over and the guy, the doctor said, yes, it's Wilson's disease. She needs to get here like right now. And she comes to Vanderbilt. I go visit her in shock, could not believe what she looked like with this advanced stage liver disease. And and she goes, I want my family to stay at your condo. If that's okay. Cause I know it'll be cleaner than a hotel. So that was like the one funny moment, but it was, it was um, really stressful because she was in dire need of a transplant and she got transplanted with about probably 12 hours left to live. Wow. And I was like, that is the first miracle I have ever seen. And it was really incredible. My friends were all drawn into the story because it was, it was such a stressful time. And then you sit there and you think, wow, a donor, somebody that is willing to let the doctors take their organs out and give it to someone else. And then to be the recipient, it's such a, I still, you know, think about that, not only with her, but with me too. And it's still hard to grasp because both of us had them so fast. And, um, it's truly a miracle and you just thank God every day for these donors and what they're able to do for other people. Because, you know, at the end of the day, when she had her transplant, I'm like, I'm going to be a donor. If there's something in my body that can help somebody else, why is it going to be buried? Let's give it away. I'm not going to know. And I think that would be one of the greatest gifts. And who knew I would be a recipient? Wow. I've got long sleeves on, but I've got goosebumps from you sharing that. So, so beautiful, that, that gift that people give. Um, do you have really any closing words? Uh, this has been such a interesting um, and enlightening conversation. I'm so thankful for your time and just wonder if you have anything else you want to add. I do want to say something, but if Dr. Shaver wants to say something, of course, I want her to also. 
I think it's really um, one of my greatest privileges to get to take care of lung transplant recipients and to meet, you know, I meet people when they're dying from their lung disease and we walk them through this process and see them get to live their best lives afterwards. And it's truly every single day, just a delightful experience. Um, and working with Ms. Kerr over the last six or seven months has been really fabulous. And oh. I look forward to the coming years. Well, and I want to say it's such a scary process. When you're told you need a transplant, it sounds scary and you know you're going to die. So the way they walk you through this is very comforting. Like Dr. Shaver, well, we can, if this comes in, we can fix this and we can fix that. And you're like, wow, that just, that's incredible. And then you have the surgery and the team of people that are around you, the doctors that come see you all day long, starting at five o'clock in the morning uh, and, and, you know, up until midnight and the x-ray people that come in, all the nurses come in and in the ICU units. And then you get down into the step-down units and you have the, all the nurses in the step-down unit. And I mean to tell you for what I had, there was never a pity. I never had a pity party in that hospital. I may have gotten frustrated waiting to go over to Stallworth with insurance issue, but the, like, even Dr. Shaver came by and said, Cynthia, now I can tell you, you are better than you think you are. And all that reassuring from the doctors, the nurses, even the tech people and, and the people that come to clean your room or change the sheets, they could not be more supportive and take the fear out of you. And you are in the Vanderbilt bubble, which I did like, and I was there for two months and I'm a competitive person and I wanted to be out like the fastest in 10 days. And that was not in my cards and it worked out fantastic. But the care and the comfort that you feel with that team takes the intimidation and the fear about 95% out of it. I mean, you have some, that's healthy fear, but um, they were absolutely incredible. And I would suggest anybody that needs one, if you can get into Vanderbilt, go. All the doctors are just over the top fantastic. And the nurses, everybody was fantastic. Wow. What incredible words. Well, thank you both for your time um, and sharing with us in our community today. It was a really great conversation. Well, thank you for inviting me to be a part of it. Well, we certainly hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast of the Big Blue. Tune in next time. We're going to be talking to Jeff Jocelyn about his film and other film to come about Coach Ken Sparks, a favorite coach back in our day. And here's a little excerpt from that interview coming up with Jeff Jocelyn. And I gave him the exclusive because I knew what was about to happen, how it was going to be played in, in the papers if I didn't say something about it. And you can still read the paper. I've, I've still got it to where I needed to be fed spiritually. And, um, and so no, he didn't like Johnny it. Majors. He shouldn't have been offended with that at all. And he knows he's not a, is, you know, Tennessee is a, is a secular, he doesn't have to be worried about that. And, and everybody knows Carson Newman is a foundational Christian college. So there shouldn't have been any bad blood with him. Well, this is the oh, there was some, there was some blood because so many people had been transferred from who left Tennessee, um, um, <laughs> had gone to Carson Newman. And was, that, it was, was that your it, fault, Jeff? Was that your fault? It, <laughs> no, no, because Bo actually Bobby Stanton, who was a, was a punter, 
before I was even there, he left to go to Carson Newman. All of a sudden, Carlton Gunn, who was a starter at UT, he had left. Dwight Wilson, who was a starter, offensive line, he had left. 